Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what is the global reaction to the political action or inaction in Ukraine? We'll analyze that for you. Canada and key Western allies are taking steps to block some Russian banks from accessing the SWIFT international payment system. Move is designed to bolster the earlier punitive actions against Moscow. We'll analyze that. And how do we develop the sort of downtown Hamilton that is equally appealing to tourists and local residents, but at the same time inclusive? John Best from the Bay Observer will join us to talk about those challenges. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Back to the issue at hand, and of course, that's what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, it, I'm sure many of us have seen the pictures and watched what's going on. Uh, to uh, set the scene for us and to bring us up to speed on what's happening, uh, we want to bring in uh, Global's uh, Redmond Shannon, uh, who uh, has the details on what's gone on in the last little while. It comes after Saturday's ban on many Russian banks from using the SWIFT international payment system and a block on Russia's central bank from accessing its foreign reserves. Some analysts believe that could cause a shortage of cash or even a run on Russian banks. Plus inflation, plus food prices going up within Russia, plus supply chain shortages now. So all of those things together put enormous pressure on the Russian economy. Sanctions against Russia are not just coming from governments. Oil giant BP says it's selling off its stake in a Russian oil company. And now FIFA says Russia's national soccer teams cannot play using their flag or anthem. That is, if any country agrees to play against them. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. Well, we've been checking and and tracking the Canadian perspective on this and the Canadian reaction to this. They are, of course, a member of NATO. And uh, we've seen a number of uh, cabinet ministers and, of course, the prime minister over the last uh, little while. Uh, so to put this in perspective, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, a pleasure to have you back on uh, the program. It's been a busy weekend. Uh, maybe we could start off with, with your analysis on, on how you think our federal government has, has reacted to this and, and the, the sorts of things that they've put forward here. Thanks, Bill. And, and thanks so much for having me on. Um, yeah, like we, we have so many people in Canada who are directly affected by this. We have a huge Can- uh, Ukrainian population here in Canada. And so there's definitely um, a big role, a big responsibility for Canada to be responsive to this and be present and engaged in this. I think um, there's a few things that, that we're doing and a few signals that we're sending. Obviously, um, we are we are on the side of Ukraine. We are very, I think the government is, is you know, being very strong in its like the language that it's using. Uh, we are showing that we are not only, you know, owning this with, with Ukraine, but also we, we're standing with our NATO partners. We're doing the things that we can. We are putting our hand up as a place that... Some we're putting our hand up as a leader who could help, uh, very particularly with uh, displaced people in in Ukraine who are going to have to get out of there. And we make a whole lot of sense as a, as a leader in that role. And I think also, you know, we're <clears throat> we're indicating that we're sending help to Ukraine. We are participating in the economic sanctions, and we're we're in this. We're we're in this for as long as it takes. I'm watching some of the commentators over the weekend, and, and sadly, we've seen you know the military aspect of this, and uh, it, it's gut wrenching to see the devastation that's going on in Ukraine uh, with some of these attacks, and uh, the courage by uh, by I was going to say Ukrainian soldiers, but not just the soldiers, because there's a number of citizens that are just fighting for their cities as well. But 
they've suggested that it, now that it's been a few days that uh, Putin made a huge miscalculation and mm -hmm. probably didn't in his wildest dreams think there'd be such pushback on this and not just from Canada, but globally. Are you surprised by that too? I'm not surprised by the global reaction at all. Um, and it's it, like going back to, to Putin's calculations in some ways, you know, this is really, it, it remains to be seen what he's actually after here. Is he, you know, is is it, he hasn't totally said with certainty is his goal to replace um, the government with a government of his own. That seems to be the thinking. Um, but I mean, at this point, as you say, he really miscalculated not only the global response, but the strength of the resistance in Ukraine, where citizens are becoming soldiers, people are picking up arms and they're fighting in the streets. And this is not what he calculated at all. And so now he's kind of you know backed into a corner where even Switzerland has come out, you know, like he even managed to get Switzerland out of its position of, of mm -hmm. decades of neutrality. Right. And so the, and Germany is 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 changing its foreign policy. And, you know, we, people are really countries are coming together around this because as much as obviously the 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 reality the hostility the the carnage of this is in ukraine we all you know we all have a global responsibility to protect democracy and if we don't all rally around well then you know we've got we've got a major major problem and so of course global partners are standing up but now you know what what does putin do like he's he's making these noises about maybe getting the you know pressing the nuclear button kind of thing some people are saying that's bs that he's made that that noise before and nothing came of it other people are saying the opposite and so you know this is kind of ratcheting up at the same time as the economic sanctions we're seeing are having a significant effect on the oligarchs in Russia as well. Even they're not, not in favor of this. And so, you know, there's a, I think this is going to be an interesting week to see what happens as those economic sanctions start to really put pressure and they get ratcheted up by the day. The uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, but I, the long-term goal, I still think, and I, a number of commentators have talked about this, uh, is still the reunification, I think, of the USSR. I mean, you know, he's, yeah. this is the guy uh, that said the, the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century was the breakup of the USSR. That tells you where his head's at. Uh, and and there's, there's a pattern here, clearly, with Crimea, Georgia, and, and now Ukraine, uh, which begs the question, you know, what's next? I mean, at some point, NATO and, and I guess the, the global community has got to say enough is enough. You're not going any further. Uh, and I guess this yeah. is where you're going to have to make the stand. The, the Ukrainian people are certainly making the stand. I think there's increasing pressure on NATO to say, OK, it stops here. Yeah. And so that's going to be the next piece, right? Is that like now we're there's always a, the management of time and these sorts of things. And so we can see that he's in a position that he didn't calculate. And now he's he's in a vulnerable spot. What is he going to do about that? Is there a possibility of, of an off ramp for him here? Um, the, one of the interesting parts that I don't know if um, if you follow the Atlantic, but there is a, a fantastic column about President Zelensky. And it's it's interesting to see how the world has gotten to know him so much, right? Like here's this guy who is is fighting in the streets with streets with his citizens. He didn't he didn't take you know a ride out, you know that that the the global community offered him. That, that's a quote so, that's going to go down in history, isn't it? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, this guy is unbelievable, and so it's it's amazing to see that that you know in in the again the the carnage and the misery and the hell of all of this, we're seeing such beautiful, authentic examples of leadership. And so he will, you know, I mean, everybody is just like, I don't know about everybody else. I'm glued to Twitter to make sure that 
the guy's going to make it through it. It's, it's unbelievable. You see these pictures of him, you know, having dinner with soldiers and oh my God. But I mean, we'll see, I think the next couple of days are going to be critical in determining whether the the sanctioned approach, the deterrence approach is going to be enough or whether, as you say, there's going to be have to, they're going to have to be something harsher and harder so that this is contained and this is, you know, you know, enough's enough. Well, the, uh, the old cliche comes to mind that uh, crisis doesn't build character, it exposes it. And, and mm. I think we've seen that with the, certainly the president, but even the people of, of Ukraine over the last uh, four or five days, especially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to see how strong a community is in the face of being absolutely outgunned. And, you know, the person who is at the center of this is a madman who doesn't, you know, who, who like you, you can't apply rational logic to this person at all. And so trying to get a handle on what could come next, it's, it's not like trying to, trying to game out, a, you know, the, the next move of anybody else. And so to, to rise up in the face of that in a way that is inspiring and strong and constant and everyone in the world just wants to be there for them. Like it's, you know, it's really unbelievable. Circle back for a couple of seconds here. I want to talk about uh, how this government is is reacting and handling this. Uh, we've been accused in the past, and maybe there's some justification that when a global crisis like this occur, uh, that we simply take a backseat and take our, our directions from the United States or, or whomever. Uh, and I guess, that, you know, let's face it, they are the big dog in NATO, and, and that, that's understandable. But I'm getting the sense of almost a more proactive approach by this government right now. And there are some ministers who are going to be in the spotlight here uh, who I think are stepping up. Uh, you know, um, uh, Jolie comes to mind right off the bat, foreign affairs minister, uh, who really seems to be front and center on this. Uh, and she's uh, she's running with it. I think I'm doing a pretty decent job. I mean, they, they were talking about quotes that, that are going to be memorable. I mean, she talked about that on Friday when they were talking about the sanctions uh, and said what a lot of people probably thought, but didn't, you know, come out and say, we're, we're going to smother them. That's, that's what this yeah. is all about. Yeah, exactly. And I'm really glad that you brought up Minister Jolie, because, I mean, as, as you recall, when her appointment was first announced, there was a lot of very heavy criticism of her that she wasn't prepared for the role. She wasn't the right person. What's going on here? You know, there were some really like just nasty and negative commentary, very much of it with a a gendered uh, approach. And so now we're seeing, you know, she absolutely is owning this file and you're right. Like in in terms of the the messaging that's coming, coming from this, that, that quote from her, we are going to suffocate them is extremely powerful and really sets, you know, makes it clear where our government stands on this and how how much we are in solidarity with Ukraine and how far we're willing to go. The fact that Minister Freeland is is one of the world's leading experts on on these issues, on Russia, Ukraine, on this file, on the conflict in that area, and she has been for decades, that's a huge, you know, that's a, that's a huge piece for Canada in that she's able to speak directly to the Ukrainian Canadian community. She's been you know, behind the scenes working this, you know, like Canada's really able to take a big lead in this in a way that we normally don't, I think, because we have that, we have that expertise, like we have that familiarity, we have this minister who's so uniquely qualified to be able to, to take a leadership role in a situation like this. But also, like, we, I think Canada's got a really long term role to play here, too. In terms of making sure people, uh, Ukrainians who are displaced have a safe place to go that is is home to them, is welcoming to them. We, you know, we stand to make an enormous contribution to that issue. 
Let me ask you this as a other contentious issue. Of course, the opposition, uh, Candace Bergen, the opposition leader, interim leader, that is, uh, came out almost with a list of things that, well, the government should be doing this and this and this and this. And uh, the government has acted on some of these things already. Uh, but the one, the, the central point of the argument seems to be uh, expelling the Russian ambassador to Canada and recalling the Canadian envoy to Moscow. Uh, I, I, I'm of the opinion that that's, that's really symbolic as much as it is anything else. Uh, and I got an explanation from uh, Minister Jolie when she was on with uh, Evan Solomon over the weekend, who basically said, we want to keep that person in Moscow because there's an awful lot of people in Russia that don't like what's going on. And we need to maintain that sense yeah. of communication. And that kind of made sense to me. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a big component of this is the, the lack of support in Russia itself for Putin's actions, including the people around him. And so that's going to be a key dimension of this as well, is how how Russia, as opposed to Putin, continues to respond to this. And I mean, the, con the conservatives have to, they're the opposition, they have to, to be able to take some kind of stand on this somehow. And obviously, um, they they want to be able to choose something to focus on that that would give them the impression of holding the government to account. This is an empirical thing. If the government was to bend to this, they could call that a win. But at the same time, you know, obviously wanting to show solidarity with where Canada is on this. This is not something that should fall on, you know, political partisan lines. This is something that Canada, you know, ought to be completely united in. Well, and, and that's what I'd like to see, too. I mean, there's a time, as you say, for this sort of thing, but it's it's interesting to see how uh, other global leaders are just kind of rallying around this and saying, okay, we can set that stuff aside. Uh, but it is it is rather interesting, though, that uh, as this is happening, of course, I mean, you know, life does not stop in other areas. There's yeah. a number of conservatives talking about a leadership race, and is Jean Charest going to enter and Pierre Proulx, et cetera, when is it going to be? And But but that's been shoved to the back burner, and, and I'm glad that it happened because it's, I'm uh, – intrigued and at the same time very gratified to see that the way the world has come into this. I mean, the way rallies on the weekend at just about every major Canadian city, usually around City Hall, uh, of, of each one of these communities. And uh, and as you mentioned, we already knew that we had a large Ukrainian population uh, here, uh, and they're concerned about their loved ones back home. And, and But the fact that the, the citizenry would rally behind something like that, I mean, let's face it, we, a lot of us have got our own problems dealing with these days, you know, some of them because of COVID, some of them because of the fallout from COVID. And to simply say, okay, fine, that doesn't matter now, this matters, is is, is quite remarkable. It is, and absolutely. Like, it's it's amazing how, you know, not too long ago, you and I were talking nonstop about a convoy. And yeah. we were talking about, you know, the, like, this, the siege of the capital city. And just a week ago, we were talking about the government using the Emergencies Act and the Conservatives and, you know, all that sort of, like, the usual cut and thrust of politics that we enjoy a whole lot. But... All of it takes a backseat when something of critical importance takes over. And that's that's a good moment. I mean, I, I wish we weren't in this position where this is the thing we all have to fo focus on because it's a horrific thing. But there, you know, we can see like and, and, and again, like we can go we can go back and forth of the pros and cons of social media. But one of the pros is that we can see with our own eyes the the solidarity across the world with Ukraine. And we can see what a peaceful protest means. And I love those photos of, of you know, so many people in the streets in, in Russia, in Georgia, in, in, and in Canada, around the world. Like, the, that is what a peaceful, meaningful protest looks like. Well, not only that, but as one of my uh, listeners emailed me earlier this morning, uh, based on what we've seen over the last weekend, says maybe you could tell all those people that thought they were, you know, being 
patriots up in Ottawa over the last two weeks. That's look at what you see on TV. That's what a loss of freedom looks like, not what you guys thought it was. And anyway, that's, exactly. a, that's a message to be learned too. Uh, Laurie, as always, thank you for this. Great talking with you again. As you mentioned, it's going to be a very, very pivotal week. And I look forward to our future conversation. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Yes, please. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As uh, we continue to watch what's happening, uh, first of all, the UN General Assembly, uh, where they're talking about Ukraine and certainly uh, over in Belarus, where uh, Ukraine officials are meeting with Russian officials, uh, hoping for a ceasefire. Uh, We'll see about that. Uh, The sanctions that uh, have been imposed by a number of countries, including Canada, uh, are front and center. And uh, the prime minister spoke, I guess, about three times now uh, over the last few days about the sanctions uh, one of them being uh, the banking system, uh, where the prime minister said he supports uh, Russia being excluded from the SWIFT system. Here's what the prime minister had to say. Support to remove Russia from the SWIFT payment system, a critical part of the global banking system. We've made it clear that all options are on the table when it comes to imposing steep costs on Russia's unjustified and unprovoked invasion. And that includes taking steps to exclude Russia from making financial transactions around the world. Excluding Russian banks from SWIFT would make it even more difficult for President Putin to finance his brutalities. Canada is also announcing that we will levy additional sanctions on Belarus and its leaders for abetting President Putin's invasion of a free and sovereign nation. So lots of talk about sanctions, uh, lots of talk about freezing assets, and, and then there's the, the SWIFT system. Uh, and remember people say, well, what, what, what is that? I've never heard of that before. Uh, to add some clarity to this, always a pleasure to welcome Marvin Ryder to the program. Marvin, of course, is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Let's, let's start with the acronym there, the uh, SWIFT system. Uh, you know, a lot. Just about everybody talked about it. The Americans, the Canadians, and others talked about this. Uh, the Society for the Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, aka SWIFT. What is it, and what does it do, and what does it mean? Well, within a country, you don't notice SWIFT at all. But let's suppose I'm a Canadian and I want to send some money to to relatives in Ireland, or I want to sell it to send it to relatives in Africa, or something like that. It allows banks in one country to transfer funds and and clear out payments to other parts of the world, and it really simplifies the global trading business uh, from a financial standpoint. It's really sort of a natural evolution with the internet to allow this worldwide chain of transactions. And it, it's taken for granted that if I need to send money to China, it'll happen. If I want to send money to Korea, it'll happen. And the same thing in this case of Russia or the Ukraine. What they're saying is that Russia, for instance, owes money to various countries. It borrows money from them. They have payments they have to make. They also want to buy goods and services. They've got to be able to buy those from outside of the country. And they would clear those transactions through SWIFT. If you don't have access to SWIFT, you can't make the transaction happen, and that's going to isolate you even more. So... How effective can that tool be? Are, are there any side doors into this solar system? I mean, you know, or, or do you just say, well, I guess we're not buying stuff from that country anymore until this yeah. is lifted? Yeah, Bill. Um, so uh, just in general, sanctions work really well when they are universally applied. Now, let me give you a non-Moscow example. I think you're aware sure. of a country called North Korea. 
and the world is saying, ooh, Kim Jong-un, you're, you're a bad person there. We've levied sanctions, and yet North Korea continues to behave the way it does. Why? Because we are not universal in our sanctions, and there's been one safe haven. That's a country called China that continues to supply North Korea with various goods and services that allows it to function, even though the rest of the world says it's verboten to sell with them. Now, I share that with you because last week we had a critical vote at the Security Council. Mm-hmm. There are 15 member nations. Russia happened to be the president of the Security Council this month, so clearly they vetoed the resolution. But three countries in the Security Council abstained from the vote. They didn't vote for or against, they abstained. Who were those countries? China, India, the United Arab Emirates. I think that's a very interesting observation because are those countries going to play ball? China has been very quiet about what it's going to do with sanctions. And you might remember just at the start of the Winter Olympics, Vladimir Putin had a key meeting with the Premier of China, Mr. Xi, and they reaffirmed their friendship and mutual cooperation. So you asked about back doors. For sure, China has its own payment clearance system that it can use. As well, we also have this marvelous technology called Bitcoin, which, of course, the whole advantage of Bitcoin is international transfer of funds without governments being able to watch what's going on. I have to believe, because this invasion was very much, I'll call it a slow-motion project, Mr. Putin had been building up this for three months. He's got to have investigated alternatives. He's got to know that some of this was going to happen, and therefore I've got to believe he's got some backdoor solutions for this. Nonetheless, they won't be as easy, and they might harm the citizens more than it would harm the government itself. In other words, uh, people of, of Russia may not benefit from uh, having the SWIFT system. Putin may have a workaround for his needs in terms of the government, but it may not help the citizens, and you may see a citizen revolt at some point. I'm not sure what's going to happen. As you say, there's going to be some people that have some trepidation about being a part of this, this whole thing about banning them from SWIFT or excluding them from these transactions. But the economic reality, and you've talked to us about this in the past when we talked about pipelines, for instance, uh, I think it's like 40% of Europe uh, depends on Russia for, for their, right. their energy. And if I'm Germany or I'm France or I'm Italy, which are three of the major countries that are, are, are you know, purchasers of that stuff, uh, I really don't want to kick Putin in the shins, do I? <laughs> well, uh, this, this then becomes a hard question as well. There's a lot of major European banks that own Russian debt. They were expecting payments on that debt. So if you kick them off swift, where's that going to happen? You expose your own national banks to, to a bad debt relief with Russia. So you've got to ask yourself, what's the greater principle at play? Now, I thought it was very interesting in the early days last week of the invasion that uh, there's a brand new pipeline called Nord Stream 2. Mm-hmm. There's already a Nord Stream 1, which is to bring natural gas into Germany. And this new pipeline, Nord Stream 2, was going to double that uh, $12.1 billion project. It is all built. It is all built. All it needs is certification from the German government, and gas would be streaming, something that Europe desperately needs, and yet Germany has said, no, we're not going to approve that. And, of course, that also means that Russia won't be able to sell the natural gas, so there's a revenue stream it doesn't have uh, coming in as well. Again, I have to believe that Putin knew that would be likely to happen, and uh, has he made alternate arrangements? For you and I, the concern is if Russian oil and natural gas is removed from the marketplace, most people don't realize this, but Russia is the third largest producer of oil in the world behind the United States and Saudi Arabia. Now, if you can't sell that Russian oil, there are people who are buying it who are going to say, okay, I'll find another supply. 
But guess what? That's going to drive up demand for the other parts of the world oil. And if there's no more supply of that world oil, that's going to send the price uh, going up for a price of a barrel of oil. You will notice on the day of the invasion, oil went over $100 a barrel. And then as they realized that, well, maybe so far it's not quite the violent thing they thought it was going to be, the price of oil came back down below $100. But if I'm the people of the Ukraine and I'm getting desperate against Russia, a well-placed bomb or two that blow up either a natural gas pipeline or blow up a, an oil pipeline, even though that would lead to a bit of an environmental disaster, it might be another way to fight back against an oppressor. All of those things, if any of those things were to happen, you could see the price of a barrel of oil shoot well above $100 a barrel, and therefore the price of the pumps start to get closer to $2 a liter. Ouch. Uh, One of the other elements to this, and they made a big to-do about this on on Saturday, I guess it was, about freezing Putin's personal assets, which I guess in principle sounds like, yeah, that's that's a real punch to the gut for these. Uh, But you can't walk into a bank in downtown Moscow and say, okay, uh, Putin's checking account. I want that frozen. Uh, He's a very wealthy man. We know that. Uh, But wealthy men like that or wealthy people like that tend to have their money all over the place, hiding it here, there, and everywhere. How effective a a program can that actually be then? So what they're talking about is trying to freeze Putin's non-Russian assets. So if he has a bank account in, let's say, France, for the sake of argument, let's freeze that. Again, if I'm Mr. Putin, knowing this was coming, chances are I've drained out of that account not all of the money, but much of the money that was there, and I've put it in some safer harbor, maybe gold, or maybe in Switzerland. Switzerland, who's always neutral to these sorts of things. Much like, again, a variation on this is uh, there was a big story out last week that Russian billionaires lost $39 billion in stock market value on a single-day trading on the Russian stock market. But I would remind people those are paper trades. They didn't really lose $39 billion in cash from their account. It was much more about uh, you know, the value of their stock going down. And those sorts of things we've seen happen before, and they do tend to bounce back on the other side of it. Really, this is the whole question is, what are we in for? I think Mr. Putin believed this would be, to I hate to use it like this, but like a seven-day war. I'll go in, I'll march to Kiev, I'll make the government fall, and then we'll make nice and this will all be over. If this becomes a protracted event that's going to run for two or three or four years, um, and, and if this is a messy thing and so on and so forth, we're into a different kettle of fish. Already there's signs that the Russian economy is falling into a recession. This is just a week into this, falling into a recession. The people have seen the value of the ruble fall from roughly 13 cents U.S. to a penny U.S., so they've lost more than 90% the value of the ruble. Not clear that the Russian citizens are still backing Putin the way he had hoped if this becomes a protracted event. And and, and to that end, if I recall the story from Saturday, Marvin, uh, they haven't frozen the assets on all Russian banks. There's a selected list that they made. Uh, would would common sense simply dictate, okay, well, we'll just put the money in the banks that they haven't listed yet. Or, and one of the other, I guess it's speculative at this stage, is uh, he's got a lot of friends, well, people that maybe fear him, but I mean, I'm putting this money here in your name. Uh, it's my money, and but, you know, you hang on to this. It's like the guy that knocks on your door and says, here, take this back, hide it under your bed until I come and get it again. I mean, there's a lot of ways. I don't think, you know, Putin is, is going to cry poor as a result of this, but the, you're right, the people in Moscow certainly might. Right. So if you, again, go to the Putin or go to the billionaires, they have lots of alternate routes. I mentioned Bitcoin is one of them. There are other countries that are not part of the sanctions. So you could open a, an account in the Bank of China. I'm sure the Bank of China would be happy to take your billions of dollars of deposits 
Uh, it's not clear that Switzerland is playing ball on this freezing of assets as well. So, you know, they're going to try to find routes. Now, the, the problem, if you will, for the allies who are upset about this is to keep closing those things off. There's something like 200 countries in the world. Even if you got 175 of them to agree to the sanctions, what about the other 25? And would there be backdoor routes for those things? So Putin is fighting that. At the same time, he's trying to uh, play with world attention. You probably know that, again, apparently um, Russia and Ukraine are going to sit down to some, I'll call them peace talks or at least negotiations. They're going to be held in Belarus in a, in a neutral third uh, city. And Belarus, the president of Belarus, who's a good friend of Vladimir Putin, has said that there will be a ceasefire during that time. Whether any of that's true, I don't know. And so, you know, he, he's, he's trying to play this game on many fronts. I think he wants a way out of this quickly. That was what his planning had been. But, I, you know, I don't know what his plan B, C, and D are. And we have to be ready for all of this as we go forward. I got about a minute left, but I got to ask about something else because I know it's another story over the weekend: uh, boycotts. Uh, LCBO here yeah. in Ontario, and I guess a number of other organizations right, right across the country, have taken Russian vodka off the shelves, uh, right. which I, I got to figure, Marvin, is more symbolic than anything else. So you, you can maybe feel good about the fact that you're not going to buy Russian vodka, but you're not going to bring the economy to their knees by doing that, are you? <coughs> well, you're not buying Russian caviar anymore either, Bill. I know you're. No, I'm not. Your your daily dose of that has gone. Well, you're right. It is symbolic. It is symbolic. But I think you, uh, our trade with Russia, Russia is not a major trader party of Canada and vice versa. Anything we do is not going to really hit them. America maybe more. But you've got to say this is wrong, and it's wrong on all levels, because you're trying to use the corporations to put uh, uh, pressure on Putin to change his mood and change his tone as it goes. So do what you can as you go forward. I don't think... In that sense, it's totally symbolic. There is uh, some, some good things at the heart of it. But no, Canada doing this. In fact, oddly, Bill, this war, if it were to be protracted, actually benefits Canada. Russia and Ukraine are major suppliers of world grain. They are the breadbasket to the world, much like Canada is. If those grain supplies dry up, they can't be filled. Guess where people are going to come? They're going to come knocking on Canada's door. Economically, this thing actually benefits us. We don't like to talk about that, but that is the flip side of this. We're not going to be able to hurt Russia with, with blocking vodka and caviar, but on the other hand, we are going to benefit because they're going to need Canadian grain. There you go. Marvin, as always, thanks for uh, shedding some light on this. Really appreciate your time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about cities, Canadian cities specifically, and how cities are supposed to grow. Uh, there's been a, a large debate, of course, over the last little while about urban boundaries and housing crisis, and do we go out or up? You know, we've heard that debate, and you've heard both sides on this program uh, with their feelings on that. But Hamilton is facing a rather interesting dilemma right now. The good news is that a number of groups, after some some serious negotiations, have come forward with a lot of great ideas and, and a lot of commitments toward money here. But is it the kind of things that we want downtown? Uh, is it going to serve the community in the best possible way? Uh, and what about the people that, that are living down there now? Is it going to have an impact either positive or negative? Uh, that seems to be the debate that's happening these days. To uh, try to sift through all of us, uh, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program John Best. John is the uh, founder and uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, and he's been following this story for, well, I guess it's been even years now. John, first of all, welcome back. It's been a while. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Bill. Good news is, as I can say, you've got a couple of groups, and we'll talk about who these people are, 
uh, right now. And they've they've kind of labeled part of the downtown here as the Urban Precinct Entertainment Group uh, and the Entertainment Precinct now, which is uh, essentially where uh, the arena, uh, Hamilton Place, Concert Hall, and of course the Convention Center are. That seems to be ground zero for an awful lot of this investment. Uh, that's the good news is, but uh, there seems to be a little bit of pushback as to exactly the impact it's going to have on the neighborhood. What, what's your assessment on, on what you've heard so far? Well, I, you know, I think what triggered this was this uh, really uh, very comprehensive article on, in The Spectator on the weekend uh, that, that really, you know, just laid out the, the whole issue. And, and basically uh, what the article was saying is that we have a, a number of social service agencies operating in the downtown core, the most visible one being the Booth Center, which is right across the York Street from the... Uh, uh, from the arena and uh, how do you know if we're going to be gentrifying this whole downtown neighborhood which uh, obviously is what's underway um, how do we deal with the sort of unpleasant visuals that you get and other forms of disruption from the people that are dependent on those services so um, everybody's sort of looking at the booth center and really wishing it would go away the Salvation Army building uh, but where would they go? And if they if they try to relocate anywhere, there will immediately be a huge outcry, uh, a nimbyism kind of outcry. At least where they are, they they're there. They've been there for years, and it would it would take quite a maneuver to get them out of there. So it's understandable that they're not anxious to move out. Well, the argument to to leave things where they are maybe that's too strong. But not disrupt this is is that these are social services. An awful lot of the people who rely on some of those social services uh, live in that area, uh, and and so you know why not have those services located there? Because you know accessibility, et cetera, et cetera. There's a number of very valid reasons why they located there in the first place. Uh, but you used uh, the the it's almost a four letter word, I guess, for some people, gentrification, uh, and saying, well, you know, you're just shoving people out of the way because you don't want you don't like the way they look, you don't like the the way that people may uh, you know form opinions because of the fact that they're there. Uh, it's it's a rather cold hearted way of looking at this, but you know, they're saying, hey, if you want development, uh, you're going to have to to do some shuffling around here right now. Does it does does it have to be an either or, John? Uh, to be honest, I don't know. And I was just thinking about your comment. You were saying that, you know, these social service agencies exist in the core because that's where their where their client is, uh, clients are. But I guess if we continue to, to gentrify the downtown, which is obviously what we are going to do, uh, will those clients, they, they won't be able to live there anymore uh, other than in shelters because uh, uh, the, the entire area of uh, central Hamilton is, is going to become unaffordable uh, for anybody, uh, certainly in their circumstances. I, I guess the question is, where do they go? Um, you know, I can't think of a neighborhood that would welcome uh, such a, a relocation. So it, it really becomes uh, uh, a real head scratcher, I think. Just so people in their minds, I can get some idea of what we're talking about here. If you've been to the downtown core, in the last uh, 25 or 30 years. I mean, you understand, I guess, the principles involved in this. Uh, the first Ontario Centre, in other words, the uh, former Cops Coliseum, the arena, which is right, as you say, at bay, 
and uh, York Boulevard. Um, you've got uh, the convention center, which is on uh, on King Street and Main Street. It covers the whole situation. And Hamilton Place, which is the, the concert hall, First Ontario Concert Hall Center now that it is called. Uh, and the one group that we're talking about here is basically talking about a refurbishment of all three of those, spending an awful lot of money. I, I mean, they're talking about a lot of money here. Uh, you've got the old city center, which used to be the Eaton Center, which has been a, a white elephant, I think, probably from the day they built it, John, really. Really, uh, yeah. And, and, and somebody's basically moving in there. And then you've got the old Copley building across the road from that on York Boulevard, uh, which is going to transform into a 70,000-foot square foot, square foot rather community hub uh, and home for the community, Hamilton Community Foundation. So there's a lot going on here uh, and a lot of money being invested in this. Do we talk to the principals involved in this? I mean, they're they're aware of what's there already, uh, yet they seem to be wanting to go for. So, are we are we stirring things up here for for you know making a mountain out of a molehill, or is there a real concern here that this stuff may not happen if uh, there isn't something done about some of these other places? Well, I I think if if there's uh, you know the people that that most need to get them out of the core uh, probably should shoulder some of the expense of of relocation. I think that's only fair if if your plan is uh, we're we're going to build a you know properties here and a lot of it's uh, the, the real piece uh, bill in in a sense is is what we haven't seen yet we you you mentioned the sixty four million that's going to be spent on refurbishing the entertainment facilities but the real play here is the high rises that are going to be built on the three properties the city turned over. Uh, as part of the deal with the entertainment precinct group. That's really the financial piece that makes this all come together. So uh, you're creating a circumstance where where these people are, I was going to say where they're unwelcome, but what I should say is they're even more unwelcome than they have been for the last 20 years. And uh, are we expecting that the city of Hamilton is going to pay the cost of uh, perhaps creating another facility or relocating people, it really becomes, you know, if, if it's a problem for you, uh, then maybe you got to spend some money fixing it. That would be certainly my first approach if I was a counselor, I think. Well, it, which raises the question, where do they go? Uh, and what do you do? I mean, you know, there's, there's the much vaunted story, of course, you know, you, New York City, especially on Broadway years ago, just a, a bit of a context here, used to be known as a cesspool. I mean, even the glory days, you know, all the play. I, I've been to Broadway. I love Broadway. We love live theater. And and Rudy Giuliani, when he was the mayor, took credit for, rightly or wrongly, cleaning up Broadway and, and basically mm-hmm. uh, getting the, 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 the grifters, getting the, the drifters and the, the street people out of there. Uh, but it was done with a huge investment. I mean, they built tons and tons of affordable housing and basically said, you know, this is where you're going to live. You're not going to live on the streets. You're going to live here. And anybody who's been to Broadway or the last, well, pre-COVID, I guess, anyway, it's, it's a rejuvenated area. I, and I guess that's what you call gentrification, because a lot of those people have simply been moved out. But where do they go? And do those services go with them? I mean, if you're going to say, OK, uh, we don't want the Salvation Army there anymore. Uh, do, you, do you take mission services out, uh, you know, where a lot of these people get meals? Do you take some of these other social services out to say you guys have to relocate too? Well, uh, I mean, that frankly, that, that appears to be exactly that. Um, I think uh, they, they quoted one of the uh, members of the downtown uh, entertainment precinct group as, as suggesting exactly that, that, you know, there has to be uh, some uh, other 
solution. There has to be some way of, uh, of, of helping people without them being there visibly in, in front of all this new development that's going to take place. And, um, you know, it, it really raises a big issue uh, of exactly, I, I think part of the problem here, Bill, is that we really don't have, at least I haven't seen a, a coherent affordable housing strategy of any sort that I can see by and because large. Because it doesn't exist, that's why. <laughs> yeah, we're, you know, we're, well, that's, that's the other problem. But to create affordable housing, obviously, you'd have to get into things like, uh, uh, to make it affordable, then you you have to do something about uh, land costs. And so you'd be utilizing public land, uh, that sort of thing. But I don't see I don't see any strategy. We seem to be just sitting around waiting for the developers to come up with these ideas. And then they'll they'll tell us that, well, we're going to put five percent affordable housing in. Uh, and that's just like a magic wand. You wait, you say the word, like Groucho used to say, you say the magic word and you win a hundred bucks. You know, they, any mention of affordable housing seems to put kind of a halo on these various projects. And, and I just think we need to be much more hands-on as a city. Uh, there's this issue of inclusionary zoning, which, uh, supposedly can uh, mandate affordable housing as part of any of these high-rise projects. But, you know, what does that mean? Uh, I, I don't see a policy. Uh, we, we seem to be, if we're, you know, it's the developer that tells us how much affordable housing uh, they're going to provide. And by and large, the answer has been, okay, thanks. And, uh, and meanwhile, we're looking at, uh, what is it, 200,000 uh, people are supposed to come to Hamilton in the next uh, 30 years. And uh, because, you know, we're not going to expand the, the urban boundary unless the province interferes. So, you know, you're looking at, that's something like 400 high rises. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work, really. Or where um, it's going to work for that matter, too. Or uh, absolutely. You have to wonder about that. But your, your point's well taken. I, years ago, I had a discussion with the uh, the developer that, that redid the Ottawa f football precinct, Lansdowne Park. It's called the Lansdowne area. And, of mm -hmm. course, the stadium there was sort of like Hamilton's old Ivor Wynn Stadium. It was tired, and it was certainly falling down and needed a repair. Uh, and, and I talked to those guys about that. I, I ran into them in a meeting in Montreal, as it turned out. But anyway, long story short, they said, you know what? The stadium is gravy. That's a throw-in for us. The money is in the commercial and and, and com re residential development. And anybody who's been there seen that's where it is. I mean, there's towers all the way around where that stadium is right now. And that's that's what they're looking for. And I'm sure that's what's going to be happening in downtown Hamilton, too. You know, the, there's an investment in the arena. That's great. Uh, the, and something to do with the convention center. That's going to be fabulous. But the goal, and I guess the attraction for this developing group here, is the commercial development that's going to happen. And I understand that. You know, there's nothing, it's not illegal to make money. But what does that do to the to the makeup of the downtown core, to the composition of the downtown core? Uh, and, and I don't know that that's really been addressed. Well, also what hasn't been addressed is what is the deal? Uh, we, we don't know very much about this deal. We know that they're, they're promising to spend $64 million on, on upgrades, most of it going into the former Cops Coliseum. The city has given up three pieces of property, uh, and, uh, which involves the parking garage, uh, a parking lot, a surface parking lot next to it, and a property on York Boulevard. So we don't know to get the 64 million and to not have to run these facilities anymore. What what have we given back 
we've given three pieces of property. It'd be interesting to know what the, you know, the going value of them was. And also, what other concessions have we made um, with regard to uh, forgiveness of taxes and so on? Um, and have we done anything that is different from uh, what we are already doing in terms of downtown tax forgiveness? You know, those are all things that we probably should have known by now. And uh, the the entire deal was dealt with in, a, in an in-camera meeting. Uh, we got a news release uh, that, that sort of sketched out in broad strokes. And, you know, to me, the, these upgrades to these entertainment facilities, to some way are almost kind of like the shiny objects and and the real deal is is what else is involved and i think we it's, need to understand all of that before we can figure out whether these I'm, I'm sure you know obviously anything on an on an abandoned parking lot is better than nothing but i i, I think the public is really doesn't have the information they need to judge these things properly well, and and because of like you say, some of the, the closed door meetings, and I get that and negotiations, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want to do that in public. But where is that discussion? Where you know, I want to know where this council, where the mayor, and everyone else that's going to be involved in this uh, feels about this. And what the, the question here, John, is I think we started at the beginning. What's your plan? Uh, you know, it's wonderful to say, look at all this investment that's on the table right now. That's great. Because I got to tell you, 15, 20 years ago, there's nobody willing to invest more than 10 bucks in downtown Hamilton. So somebody sees something here in the way of a vision. But uh, we also have to understand a reality here. Uh, you know, if, if you're talking about you know people that are having challenges, some of those are mental health challenges, certainly uh, poverty challenges in some of these areas. I mean, there are soup kitchens a couple of blocks away from here, too. Uh, and, you know, there were some issues to do with halfway houses. Those are things that communities have to have uh, in some way, shape or form. And, and I know there's always been a debate. Like, don't put it here. Don't put it there. It's got to go somewhere. And, and ultimately, it's going to be the elected officials that are going to have to make that decision. And I, I know that they're sitting on the fence right now because they figure they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. But that's their job. I mean, we're looking for some leadership here. Yeah, I, I really think, you know, we're, we're in an election year and there's uh, a lot of talk about uh, mainly about booting out incumbents uh, is mainly what we're talking about. But but I think there's a there's a bigger issue here that regardless of who gets elected, uh, we, we have to start having some, uh, you know, some some really serious strategic discussions about these challenges that are coming. We've got all these people that are going to be moving into the market. We have uh, certainly the poverty issue, all the all the various facilities you mentioned. Plus, there's an injection site right across the street from the former Eaton Center. So there's, you know, we're we're really or one block over, I should say. We're we're kind of taking a piecemeal approach, uh, and I don't see uh, anything coalescing uh, where the public is involved. Essentially, uh, we find out about it when when uh, applications are made uh, to the planning department. Uh, so, you know, and of course, you can't expect competing developers to cooperate with each other. And that's the reason why we need the city to be a, a little more hands on, uh, develop a strategy, uh, a growth strategy. You, you voted to not expand the boundary. That's fine. So now what? Uh, I, I don't hear any discussion about that. Maybe the, I, I think there was a staff report that that that's tried to tackle what the city will look like uh, without uh, urban boundary expansion. But uh, there, there, you know, there's 
I don't see the public uh, here at all in any of this. And uh, maybe it's a COVID issue. Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but it, it strikes me that we got some very serious growth challenges in front of us, and I don't see anybody taking charge of it. Well, yeah, and because of the council decision, uh, as you say about urban boundary, essentially the you know one of the conclusions there is okay, we're all going to be in this group. We're not you know so you know we got to do more than just get along. We have to have a plan to decide what's going to go, what services are going to be there, and how this is going to be funded, and the impact it's going to have. I know there are some people that never wanted to go to a hockey game or Cops Coliseum because they didn't want to go out on New York Boulevard and see some of the people that might be hanging around uh, the Salvation Army. I mean, and there were some violent episodes there years ago. I, I haven't heard of any lately. I hope that means they're under control. But those are all issues that have to be part of this conversation. We can't just, you know, you know, pie in the sky and say everything's going to be fine. As soon as we build these things, out, you know, it's going to be a great downtown. I hope it is. Uh, and, you know, and they want to have, you know, more places like Hess Village, you know, where there can be bars and outdoor patios. Sounds wonderful. But what are you going to do with the people that are already there? And they have not answered that yet. No, no, they haven't. And and there's uh, it's all silos. You got the development silo. You've got uh, you know the poverty industry silo. Um, you know there's there's nobody coordinating. And I think uh, you know the the logical party for that is the municipal government. That uh, you know let's start having some serious discussions about some of this stuff. Uh, you know, instead of arguing over uh, financing bicycles, uh, let's let's get at the you know the the real issues, yeah, which are real issues. housing, housing, and housing, and and plus John, social services. Exactly. Uh, well, we look forward to that. Thank you for the great work that you've done covering this, and uh, more to come on this, as they say in the biz. Thanks, John. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.